Please turn turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Good morning. We did a switcheroo again. There's a little bit of panic as I was trying to get it the mic on my, my head, my big old head. So it's good to see you all this morning. It's good to dive into God's word together. And I pray that this will be a blessing to you all. I encourage you, challenge you, and uh, point you to the rock in which our salvation is set upon. Um, diving in, have you guys ever had circumstances that led you to have to sleep on the floor or like an uncomfortable chair? Maybe you traveled on like an extended flight and had a longer than expected layover in an airport terminal or needed a nap. One time I slept in the Doha, Qatar airport in the Middle East. Slept is a nebulous word there. I I tried. (laughs) It was hard. Or perhaps you went camping and completely forgot to bring a sleeping pad to go underneath your sleeping bag in your tent. And you weren't, you, were, you weren't laying on the ground, actually, but you could feel the cold earth underneath you. You could feel everything that was underneath that sleeping bag, every rock and root that formed your ultra-firm bed for that evening. Resting on top of a bunch of pebbles doesn't really lend itself to a good night's sleep, does it? You see, in the Christian life, preachers and mentors often will exhort us in the midst of great difficulty, a moment of anxiety, or even when we're brought face to face with our sin, to rest in Christ, to rest in the gospel. But what does that mean? I mean, many times we might view this admonition to be akin to sleeping on rocky ground. Like Jacob at Bethel, we can only find a large stone to be our pillow when we're running away from our past sin and our family issues, that's all that we can find. So that'll do, is the stone pillow. Our attempts to rest in Christ actually leave us more exhausted because we, we don't know what it means to practically rest in Christ. And we fail to understand what God's rest looks like. And that's because in our decadent, consumeristic culture, rest is all too often inactivity, right? It's passivity. It's it's vegging out, taking a load off. You know, everybody's working for the weekends, right? Everybody's working for the weekends. We can step away from the daily grind and get those days off that you deserve. And now that summer's here, right, you can kick back and have even more time to stream all those shows that you hadn't been able to get to during, during the school year. And vacations and holidays provide extra opportunities for you to either indulge or to actually be refreshed. And of course, rest can include slowing down, stepping back from all the busyness, and participating in hobbies or travel. It can even lead to a really nice nap. But the Bible teaches us that rest is not just doing whatever your flesh wants in response to the good news of Jesus Christ, in response to the Word of God. And there's legitimate, real danger in viewing the good things of this world that characterize our leisure in a disordered way to the point where, as Neil Postman once said, we amuse ourselves to death. Resting in Christ doesn't just bring, it doesn't bring 
death and enslavement to our passions, but it brings freedom. It brings recreation, recreation, and worship. So this morning, I want us to see from this text, Psalm 95, that to rest in the gospel means your life is built upon the rock of Christ and not a rebellious rock-hard heart. That's where you find your home, is on the rock of Christ, not your rock-hard heart. It's to set your thoughts, desires, and your will, which is what the Bible calls the heart on the good news of the gospel, and not on your flesh, not on the world's idols, and not on your works, but on Christ's work. So to see this truth this morning, let's look at Psalm 95. And my prayer is as we roll our way through this text, you'll see three ways that we rest in the gospel. Because the gospel is not just a bed or something. It's Christ himself. He's a person. We rest in Christ as our rock, as our king, and as our creator. Our rock, our king, and our creator. And then at the end, the final point, we'll camp out looking at the response to Christ, to his voice, the voice of the rock, the king and the creator. So let's look at, look at our text, Psalm 95. Frank already read it for us. Let's dive in and see, first of all, how we rest in Christ, our rock. Look at the text in verse 1. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, Psalm 95, it doesn't list a writer at the beginning of it, like many psalms in the Psalter does. But the good news is that we have another passage in Hebrews 4 that provides a lot of commentary on this passage. And in verse 7 of Hebrews 4, it ascribes the authorship to David. So, since the Holy Spirit gave us that commentary, I'm going to refer to this as David's words throughout the sermon. And one of the first things we see in David's words here is that biblical rest and worship, they're interconnected. They're interconnected. Because by faith, we come each week here to gather with our brothers and sisters, fellow saints in the Lord, in this room to participate in a Christian Sabbath on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And this time of rest, it's not a license to take a nap. Although sometimes I've preached up here and some of you did that. And, and It's happened to Greg too. It's not just the second string, okay? It happens to the first string. All right? And it's not a time to just play on your phone and piddle around and, and follow like wherever this wormhole of links and looking on things on your phone. No, we're called together to be in active participation with God's people as an expression of our covenant renewal with the living God. We assemble to praise and worship, to sing and make a joyful noise. And I know sometimes it's not so joyful coming out of some of your mouths. We're, we're not as good at singing, but it is joyful in the ears of the Lord. The Lord who this first verse here describes as the rock of our salvation. What does the Bible mean by saying the Lord is the rock of our salvation? Well, let's look at how David uses those same words elsewhere. In his famous song of deliverance found in 2 Samuel 22, he says this, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You see, in these verses, we see the theme of safety with words that are, like, that are used like fortress and refuge and shield and stronghold. Likewise, we see the idea of deliverance from enemies with words like deliverer and horn of salvation and even savior. See, in biblical times, stone was one of the more trustworthy resources and materials used to build fortifications. They weren't using steel and a lot of things that we use today to try and make things more secure. They were using stone. And the way rock is used here in this passage is to proclaim 
the steadfast security and strength that the Lord provides for his people against evil and as well against ultimate destruction. Because we can confidently hide in him and find eternal protection. This is the truth that we sing when we sing that hymn, Rock of Ages, which says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure and save from wrath and make me pure. Like the cleft of the rock Moses hid in while God's glory passed by. In the caves that we saw David as we went through 1 Samuel, he, he, he hid in them while running and hiding from Saul in the wilderness. Our Lord is the rock of our salvation within whom we are safe. Safe from sin, safe from wrath. He's our hiding place. He's our city of refuge. God is our rock-solid foundation, too. Our salvation is found in him, and it is built upon him. As Psalm 62, 7-8 says, On God rest my salvation. My glory and my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Our salvation rests on God, our mighty rock. He's, he's trustworthy. He's a faithful foundation that cannot be shaken or destroyed. And God's people rest their salvation on Christ, the rock. And when you ponder that and treasure that truth, the call to praise the Lord and pour your heart to him, it's, it's possible. Because Jesus is the sure and steady stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone of your faith. But Christ isn't simply the rock of our salvation. As our text shows us this morning, he is king. So, rest in Christ as your rock, but also rest in Christ the king. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 95. It says, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, and in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. We, we regularly fail to grasp the greatness of our God. As David says, he is the great king above all gods. So the second way that we rest in the gospel is by resting in Christ as our king. The truth here is a call to submit ourselves to the benevolent rulership of Jesus as Lord because his government is completely righteous and his reign, it leads to true flourishing. There's a sense in which the Bible is very political. When you see Christ is king, it's an affront to all the other rebellious rulers of the world, past, present, and future. As W.S. Plummer explains, the word gods here in verse 3 refers to all false gods, magistrates, and angels. And think about it. Just think about how you've read the Old Testament. There we saw the rulers of Egypt, Philistia, Assyria, Babylon and Persia were all confronted with the truth that there is one God above the entire cosmos, and his name is Yahweh. And then in the New Testament, we read that Rome and Caesar took violent umbrage with the claim that Christ is Lord. The empire wanted everyone to say, Caesar is Lord. Just say it, and then keep going on with your business. But the early church would not acquiesce to this falsehood. They chose to live not by lies. Instead, they joyfully proclaimed the truth because they knew the truth and it had set them free. They were free by the truth. They believed that the kingship of Christ is eternal and superior to all the principalities and powers in the universe, both visible and invisible. So when they heard the story from Daniel 2 about the stone that struck the feet of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You guys remember this? They could see that that rock was Christ the king. Look at verses 34 and 35 of that chapter and see Daniel's interpretation. He says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, and it became like chaff, of the summer threshing floors. 
and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them can be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Christ is that stone that was uncut by human hands that strikes down the empires of the world and his reign grows into that great mountain that fills the entire earth. The kingdom of God has no boundaries. To be a part of this kingdom, to possess that citizenship, it is from heaven, means it transcends and redefines our membership and all other groups that we find ourselves here in on earth. And we see this reality in Christ's great commission that he gives to the church in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Listen to his words. Jesus came and said to them, All authority, how much? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore make disciples of all nations. How many nations? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How much? All that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How long? Always. Christ's authority as king is over everything, heaven and earth, with disciples in all nations that obey all of his good and righteous rules. He holds all of the nations in his hand, and he holds all of creation in his hand. He's not just a king over the church or people, the sixth day of creation. He's sovereign over all aspects of the first five days of creation, which is what the rest of verse 4 says here. It says, In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The language of our psalm here employs is to show the totality of his rule, but not only that, the intimate care in which he governs the world. It's in his hands. He doesn't just tell the depths and heights what to do. He, he's able. He does that. But he holds them in his hands. They're his possession. And these phrases, depths of the earth and heights of the mountains, they represent the lowest and the highest parts of the world, of the cosmos. I mean, many of you have probably read um, or searched online and, and found these odd creatures that make their homes in the very depths of the ocean. You know what I'm talking about? They're kind of freaky looking. Like the anglerfish that has the little like, light on the end and like, will grab things. And then there's another one called a blobfish, which the kids and Grace kids looked at a couple weeks ago. And it just looks like a blob. And it's weird. It's weird. And there's all kinds of other crazy, creepy looking things down there in these dark and low places that the pressure is so intense that if we were to try and go down there without any help, we'd be crushed. We'd be crushed to death, and yet these creatures just living it up down there. God rules over all of those creatures down there that we will never even see. And the same is true of the birds of the air and the wild beasts that inhabit the highest altitudes on earth, as well as every star, planet, and black hole in the heavens. He rules over every single one of them. The surface, sky, and the center of the earth are all under the control of Jehovah. Christ is king over the smallest bacteria, the largest of beasts, the least populous nation, and the greatest of empires. So it should be no surprise that he is also king over you because he created you. Which brings us to the next point. We rest in Christ, the creator. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 95. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. And then it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The reason why the sea and the dry land belong to God is simple. He made them. This reality about the world is hardwired into us more than we realize because we're made in God's image and we were created to reflect our creator by being creative ourselves and this ultimately glorifies him. I mean, think about it. This is something I see regularly in my house and many of you with little ones will see it too. When a child is playing with Legos and he makes some awesome vehicle or spaceship out of a variety of bricks, 
the resulting posture of that little one to that spaceship or whatever. It, he might say it's a spaceship. But you're like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Over that finished product is ownership. This is mine. I made this. But now he, he might not, probably didn't, purchase any of those bricks or accessories, right? <laughs> he used those things that you probably gave him as a gift or your, the grandparents. Lots of gifts from the grandparents, right? <laughs> they use that and then their imagination, the design, and the subsequent uh, construction, they brought it to life. And this same truth is on display when some of you in this room are engineers. You write code, you create programs, you develop blueprints for new designs. And you're like, that, that was my work. I did that. And artists, film writers, authors, songwriters, you would be appalled to find your work replicated and plagiarized without your consent. That's why patents and copyright laws exist for this reason, because the makers have a right to what they make. They own it. And when we rest in Christ as our creator, we're acknowledging that he formed the seas, he formed the dry land, he formed everything, he formed us by his hands. And it's good that he did that. He has ownership over men, women, boys, and girls. David calls us in this psalm to come and worship the Lord by bowing down to him as our maker. And this call for reverence to the one who decreed, designed, and developed our entire being, it reflects his character. But unlike the engineer, the Lego builder, he fashioned and furnished this world ex nihilo, which is a cool Latin phrase that means out of nothing. He did it out of nothing. He's like, I want to make land. Okay, land be there. Like, he just speaks it into existence, and it's there. He doesn't need some raw materials, which just start with his grand project of creation. He speaks it into existence. And as he spoke the dust into existence, then he takes it and he shapes man and breathes into him. This grand maker is king over all that he created, including us. And one of the most important ideas in theology that we cannot forget is the massive difference between our creator, God, and his creation, which includes every person, place, and thing, or everything. Theologians call this the creature-creator distinction. There's a huge chasm between creation and God. He created it all. His power, his wisdom, his might, it transcends. We can't even touch it. And considering this truth, W.S. Plummer comments on verse 6. He says, The creature cannot be too referential to the creator, or humility, our humility before God cannot be stinted. He's saying our humility or praise towards our maker should not be stinted, meaning it ought not to be sparing or frugal because of the chasm that exists between us and God. He's utterly transcendent, and yet he intimately formed us by his hands, and thus, Christian, that means we should not be stingy in our worship of the Creator King. As Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 reads, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see here in Isaiah, through the Lord's rhetorical question, that there isn't actually a house or any place made by human hands where the Lord rests. His hand made everything. And on the seventh day, God rested from creating the entire universe and said it was good. So the one to whom the Lord looks to bless and have his grace rest upon is he who is broken and contrite in his heart towards his words. It is the humble, soft-hearted man and woman that, that heeds the scriptures, what they have to say about them, and reveres the Lord as rock, king, and creator.
As John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If you're a sheep, when you hear his word, you're like, I know that's his and I want to I want to follow it. I know that he's the good shepherd that I want to follow. And he offers rest to all who listen to his voice and follow him. Which brings us to the last point that we'll spend a little more time on, which is rest and respond to Christ's voice in verses 7 through 11. Look at verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, so far we've seen three ways that we rest on Christ in the gospel from Psalm 95. We rest in Christ as the rock of our salvation, as our king, and as our creator. However, these truths may just seem abstract. Like, you could, you could sing those things and then live like they don't mean anything to your life. And so what David does is he starts with this call of worship to praise Yahweh for his salvation, his kingship, and his creation. And then, starting in verse 7, he takes these transcendent and heavenly realities and he pushes them down and applies them to you all in a concrete manner. Because the Lord is your rock, king, and maker, because he shepherds you, he leads you, guides you, provides everything for you, and because you use your lips to praise him for his character and his past works, it should affect your daily life. If all these things are true, the things that we just sang, if all the things that we just talked about, him being rock, king, and creator, are true, it begs the question, how then should you live today? And to answer that question, David charges his hearers, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I mean, maybe you read something in Scripture recently or heard it preached by Greg in the past few weeks or maybe a year ago, but it's coming back to your memory now and it convicted you and yet you continue to ignore it. Harden out your heart. This teaching that's nagging you, this truth that's knocking on the door of your heart, that is God's grace to you. David says here, don't keep the door locked. Don't harden your heart in response to it. May your heart be softened to that word that's been pressed upon your soul. Is there sin that you continually sweep under the rug, hoping that no one will notice, or you justify it to yourself? Are these respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges has called them, like pride or discontentment? You're never satisfied with the good gifts of your family, your work, all the food that you have, and all of life is just to complain about how high gas prices are. Are you unthankful? Do you lack gratitude? Are you impatient or irritable? Every little thing sets you off. If only, if only these kids, if only that coworker would just do what he's told, then things would go a lot better around here. I'd have some peace and quiet dag on it. Resentment, holding grudges, refusing to forgive, even though someone has come to you and said, please forgive me. And you said, yeah, I forgive you. And yet, you don't cast that as far as the east is from the west, and you keep it there before you as a little pet. And you say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to set this aside in case you peel off again, and I'll bring it out to remind you. You see, years of perpetually avoiding the deep cleaning that only Christ can give us for all of these respectable sins, they'll eventually be too obvious. 
I know a lot of you aren't hoarders, right? And, and you don't do like some hack job cleaning around spring. But if you were to just keep dusting things under the rug, eventually the rug is going to have some mounds. And you're going to say, is it really clean? Or do I just have this mountainous rug throughout my apartment or my home? You can, you can lie to yourself and be like, oh, we cleaned it up. It's like the kid who pushes, hey, can you clean your room? And you push all the toys in your closet and you open it up and it all just falls out. Well, it's clean before you came in and opened the closet. I didn't just say clean the floor. Just reorder and put it back in the right spot. You can't hide these transgressions forever. In fact, they'll grow and in time they'll rot to the point where the stank is unavoidable. It's fouler than you could ever imagine. And God already knows that it's there. And that's why he graciously gives us his word that pierces our souls and calls us back to him. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, a passage that's commenting on this psalm says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to his eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, hardened hearts are not resting in Christ. Hardened hearts are resistant to his word, being implanted in them and bearing fruit. They're hearts of stone rather than hearts of flesh like Ezekiel talks about. When Pharaoh heard God's word via Aaron and Moses and saw the signs and wonders performed by his hand, he refused Yahweh's request and hardened his heart against him. Is your heart resistant to the teaching of God's word? I ask because the encouragement to rest in the gospel is really a shorthand of saying believe the gospel. When you rest in the gospel, you trust and obey that Christ actually is the rock of your salvation, that he actually is a victorious king of your heart, and that he is the good creator of your body and soul. It's living by grace. It's orienting your heart, which includes your mind, your desires, and your will toward the cross of Christ. And all of this, guys, is done by faith. But we too often think that this isn't good news. But it is. It's the best news that's ever been proclaimed in the entire universe. It's the best news. And yet we, keep, we hear these opposite narratives. And we're like, oh, I'll try and brush it under the rug. Or, oh, I'll try and do these sort of things to gain my acceptance back to Jesus. And that makes us weary and heavy laden with demands we cannot meet. The gospel always speaks a better word to us in our hard hearts. And it actually leads to true rest because God's word doesn't come back void. His promises that he gives us never fail but we too easily believe they will. And to dis demonstrate what hardened hearts do in action, David alludes to a well-known event in Israel's history. Look at verse 8. He says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. What happened at Meribah? What happened at Massa? Well, let's look at Exodus 17 real quick and see. In verse 1 it says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, 
and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, in this text, I mean, they give you the explanation of it. Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling. And this episode is one of many instances in the wilderness where the Israelites, who had seen God's miraculous deliverance from the Egyptians in both the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, they hardened their hearts to God's leadership. The Israelites grumbled and judged God to be unfaithful to the point where Moses is legitimately concerned that like, hey Lord, I really think, I've heard this happen in other tribes, but I think they're going to stone me (laughs) if we don't get some water quick. But God kindly directs Moses to action and gives the complaining Israelites water to quench their thirst. But the legacy of that place is preserved here for our instruction. Psalm 95.9 explains that at Massa and Meribah, it is when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And there's this audacity in this pop quizzing of the Lord that's summed up in their ridiculous question that we see in Exodus 17.7. They said, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here or not? And, and given our world today, a lot of us could ask the same question if our hearts are hardened. Is the Lord among us or not? But as Douglas Stewart, a commentator, explains, the people's question, it must be seen as nothing other than contempt of the Lord's leadership over them. It's like asking a runner in the middle of a marathon, you know, that's just going, trying to survive, right? Do you intend to run this race? (laughs) Yes, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) It's like asking a mother who's working hard in the kitchen to prepare dinner for the entire family and and some kid being like, hey, are we going to eat dinner tonight? (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm trying. It's an insult. It looks at the obvious and implies by snidely denying that what's happening is good. And this is the attitude that the Israelites regularly contributed to their relationship with the Lord over the course of 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord delivered them from slavery, guided them as a pillar of fire and cloud, provided manna, quail, and water, all the while not allowing the soles of their sandals to wear out, but they made a practice of hearing his voice and neglecting it, thinking it's foolish, not acting like he's faithful. They hardened their hearts and stubbornly sought to make them impenetrable to God's word and promises. Why should you listen and trust in him when you could complain about your circumstances and play the victim? You go, I brought us out into, into this wilderness and we're going to die. And they're like, let's, let's reminisce on the good old days when we were slaves under a pagan ruler in Egypt who sought to kill our firstborn children at one point. See, hard hearts, they think, desire, and do just absolutely foolish things. Therefore, ask yourself this morning, are you resting on the rock of salvation? Or are you resting on the rock of your hardened heart? Is Christ king over your life? Or are you the tyrant in control? Do you trust in him as creator? Or are you trying to create God in your own image? Do you commit yourself each day to believe the Lord's voice? Or do you scoff at his teaching and continue in sin just like the Israelites did in the wilderness? Resting in the gospel, it has to do with our response to what Christ has already done. It's not about your feelings, which are like a waterbed, to use the resting analogy some more, 
waterbed, and I, I know what they are. I know I look young, but I've been on one before. <laughs> it's like a waterbed that tosses you to and fro, depending on the moment. Pushing down, the world's pushing down on one end. You think your family's pushing down on the other, and it's just, it's not a settled thing. Resting the gospel is about faith in God's gracious work on Calvary. Our hearts are regularly tempted to become hard and they compel us to snidely ask, is the Lord among us or not? But we're pressed by Psalm 95 to come into his presence, to worship him and love him by obeying his word from the heart every day. And get this, even when you fail to do that, you can come back to Christ again and give him your heart once more. Don't keep running away. Don't keep sweeping under the rug. Come back to him again. As Dr. Craig Troxell writes, there is nothing in our heart that the Lord of our heart cannot make right. There is not one thing So as Proverbs 4.23 reminds us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You rest in the gospel by guarding your thoughts, desires, and will of your heart and giving them to the rock, the king, the creator of your soul. So Christian, when your mind comes face to face with your sin, your sin, you know, how you fall short of what you know about God's standard, the things that you've heard here, set your feet upon the rock of your salvation. Refuse to follow your heart by seeking to cover your shame through vain and ineffective attempts. The only refuge you have from your guilt is the blood of Christ. Come to the cross in repentance and faith. Believe the gospel and trust yourselves to Christ's care and protection. He provides a fortress from the fiery darts of accusation that the enemy wants to hurl at you because he's already absorbed every single bullet you deserve for your sin. Come to him. When you're confronted with your heart's willful rebellion against the Lord, you lay down your self-righteous justification for that treason before the crucified king. This is what God does. He turns enemies into friends. He transforms them from the inside out. We were all enemies at one point, and he changes us. We can't use the sins of others and weaponize them as reasons for our refusal to love and forgive others and to reject God's promises. As you do not overcome evil with more evil, you overcome evil with good. And likewise, fearing man, what man might do to you, it's not a legitimate excuse for denying Christ's rulership and disobeying his word. Christ has won the victory for his people, and he calls men and women everywhere to observe all that he commands, not just the most palatable aspects, or to reinterpret them in a way that makes it accessible to you. When your desires are enticing you to act in a manner that goes against God's perfect design, you look to Christ, your creator, because he knitted you together in your mother's womb and makes you a new creation by the gospel. Your maker has claim over you because you bear his image and because he purchased you back from the dead by his very blood. So you should always be leery of any time your heart wants to lead you away from his revealed word about creation or what the gospel is, the new creation in Christ. Because like Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But our Creator responds, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and to, to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Christian, we don't simply hear the word and not do it. As James 1, 22 through 24 reminds us, we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. It's so absurd. I mean, some of us are like, 
I, I want to forget that. Or like, I need to go like get ready now. Like I, you know, like I need to get my, my makeup on or I want to, I need to take a shower. I just came back in from a run, like whatever it is. But you know what you look like. You don't turn around and say, I don't know what I look like. It's foolish because the mirror shows who you are. The Israelites heard God's word and deceived themselves by failing to do it. They looked in the mirror to see what they looked like, which they should have seen a people who have been saved by grace and shepherded by Yahweh, and then they just walked away forgetting their sacred confession. And this is the exhortation that the author of Hebrews gives us when he quotes Psalm 95 extensively. In fact, like I said before, the best commentary available to us on this psalm is written by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 3 and 4. Look in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. And we're, almost, we're close to the end here. The author says, Take care, brothers, lest there be an ev- in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's another part of this, is that God graciously brings us into the church and places brothers and sisters around us who courageously confront us with the word of God so that our hearts don't grow cold and hard by sin. I know a lot of you are from here. You're born and raised here. Your grandchildren are here. Your grandparents are here. And they've, you've been brought in this room together. And that is God's grace that you're in this church here. And I am grateful that I'm not from here. I didn't grow up here. I don't have grandparents here. And yet God has brought me here to be in fellowship with you all for this very reason. And you do that to me too. We aren't just concerned about ourselves. We want our fellow Christians to not harden their hearts as well to the Lord. And this is what Caleb and Joshua did in Numbers 14 at Kadesh on the edge of the land of Canaan. They encouraged, they said, God's going to give us the land. We just got to enter into it. He's already won the victory. They're not that big. I know we look like grasshoppers, but he said he's going to provide the victory. Let's go. And they encouraged one another with the promise of that rest. And we, like Joshua and Caleb, with one another, we promise the eternal rest in Christ to believe God's word and listen to his commands all the way up until he dies or until we die or he returns. For the Lord said as a warning in Psalm 95, 11, about that generation, therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We don't want to be like them. The Joshua's and Caleb's that confront you and your sin, don't push them away. When they bring up a scripture verse, don't be like, you should be minding your own business. No, I'm sorry, you're a member of this church that isn't my business. I love you. That's why I'm bringing it up. Don't die in the wilderness. We choose not to harden our hearts against God and fellow Christians by refusing to confront them in the truth and love. We encourage people, the people of God, with every opportunity we're given to rest in his strength, security, and sovereignty because we know that he will one day raise us up and give us a final Sabbath in the new heavens and new earth. So, is the Lord among us or not? Oh yeah, he is. He's among us today, right now, in America, in the middle of the month of June. Whatever you do, don't harden your heart to his voice. It will not give rest to your soul. It will be like trying to sleep on that rocky ground without any reliable shelter overhead. It'll be like building your house on shifting sand. And as Jesus once preached to us in Matthew 7, 24, everyone that hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So Christian, instead of selling your soul 
for an apartment on the sands of the world's beaches. Build your house upon the rock of your salvation, within the jurisdiction of the king who created and holds together every single beam, brick, and nail needed for its construction. For it is only in this home that you can truly ever enter his rest now and forever. Brother and sister, rest in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you acknowledging that there are a lot of instances in which we hear your word and yet we harden our hearts. We proclaim to you, we pray to you, say, help our unbelief. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We know what you've done on the cross. We know what you've done in dying for our sins. We know how faithful and true you are. We know that you're the rock of our salvation, the king of our hearts, the creator of our very being. God, by your grace, through faith, help us to repent of our sins, to believe the gospel, to trust in the finished work of your Son, and to not grow weary in doing good for your kingdom. Because we know that all that we do in the Lord, in union with you, it's not in vain. So help us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in that work. So that you might be glorified, so you might be magnified, and so that we might have abundant life now and into eternity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it cuts and pierces and divides and reveals our thoughts and desires. May they conform to you, Lord Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.